kill you. Yeah, what's wrong with the beer we got? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and the few listeners in the chat. It's six o'clock. It's Monday, and it's another edition of Auntie Nanny. Um, with me tonight is the very best producer money can't buy, which is good because I'm still not paying him. Hi, Perry. How are you this week? Doing good. The, the Doing latest good. storm hit England, not Scotland. So, yay. <laughs> Well, yay. Um, Imagine this week. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, you went to a gathering this weekend. Did you have fun? Yeah, it was good. Yeah. Just um, a little small local meet. So I think, uh, I think there was only about nine people at peak. So, yeah, not bad. Except it was the Calcutta Cup in Edinburgh. <laughs> uh, for people who don't know what that is. That's the Scotland versus England rugby match, and it was in Edinburgh this week, this this time round. So, yeah, it was really, really loud and busy in the bars. So, ah. so, not not the nice, relaxing, small mini meet you were expecting. Oh no, I knew it was going to happen because obviously <laughs> the game is known about long time in advance. Yeah, um, I guess for news, it's been an interesting week um, in the <laughs> in the EU. Google and their three percent tax rate are kind of a big subject, which I, I guess I don't blame people for. You know, when people are paying thirty five to fifty five, if not more, percent in tax, and then a company gets off with three, you kind of go, "We're all in it together, are we?" Um, which that tells you no, you're not. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't... Is it... Were they just angling to get something from Google? Is is that the reason for that? Or yeah, do you well, know? Yeah, the, well, the Osborne uh, said it was, it was fant a fantastic deal. You know, he's done right. well by the country. How about getting them to pay all the tax? They owe <laughs> not just 3% of it. <laughs> well, you know, they, they should be paying... Um, the amount they paid was for 10 years, 130 okay. million pounds. Google. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas normal working people pay a lot more. 
Yeah, well, that's uh, it's always the way it is. Is it 94, 92% of the wealth is now concentrated in the hands of six people. Yeah. That's fantastic. We're doing really good on the lower 8%. Um, yeah, yeah, the, the, the US and UK and Europe, yeah, when they agreed to clamp down on all these corporations, uh, yeah. getting away with paying tax, yeah, they've, they've done so well. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, what was, what was I going to say? Oh, that's right. Um, so I don't know if anybody heard about the groups lobbying the president to add mandatory mental health screenings to our health insurance, which is, I mean, that's, I guess that's almost fine, but anyone over 18 will be mandatorily screened every year. I'm not sure I'm really comfortable with that. I'm already not comfortable with the amount of information the government already knows about me. And I know they want to restrict things the way that they do um, normally. I'm just afraid if they find out that someone's like clinically depressed or, you know, just blue, that they'll try to take some of their freedoms away. I'm not really happy with that. I mean, and we have less and less freedom every year. Every year, it seems like the laws are better obeyed in other places than here. So, I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, find them yeah, kind of scared the of the mandatory mental health screening, as long as they start with Congress. Uh, <laughs> that would be the way to go, wouldn't it? Because well, some start of them with... definitely aren't right. No, no, they're not. And let's see, the cheese is basically crack story is back in the headlines again. <laughs> yeah. So... <laughs> So I think that's pretty funny. Um, yeah, I can't, uh, I, I'm not really addicted to cheese. I like it, don't get me wrong, but uh, I'm not really addicted to it. Cheese has MEOIs. Yeah, that's, well, that's so does tobacco, yeah. so does a whole bunch of other stuff. It's got feel-good chemicals in it, so yeah, it's bound to be slightly more addictive than other stuff, but yeah. <laughs> They always do the crack comparison. It's like, uh, no. <laughs> no. It's like shooting heroin. Don't eat it. I'm like, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, <laughs> often, you often see, you know, the guy in the street sitting with his little sign, you know, um, <laughs> trying to get money and then running around to a shop to buy cheese. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> always. Always, yeah, always, always. Every street in America, obviously. <laughs> it's not just America, it's a worldwide problem. Um, well, well, we'll mention the Swiss <laughs> and the French. So, right, all right. I'm gonna, I'm gonna start. Disclosure: TSA cannot verify employees' criminal histories. Congress: thousands of TSA ID badges still missing. Government oversight officials informed Congress on Wednesday that the Transportation Security Administration continues to operate in disarray failing to record basic security details for thousands of employees and not tracking official IDs and badges that allow access to the most sensitive areas of an airport. Lawmakers described the security agency as operating in chaos and expressed frustration with the Obama administration officials as they informed the House Oversight Committee about a range of security shortfalls that continue to endanger the nation's 550 commercial airports. TSA's inability to properly screen and track employees has been well documented for years. However, the administration has failed to enact multiple reforms aimed at tightening security and making it more efficient, lawmakers said. 
TSA cannot verify their employees' criminal histories and immigration statuses according to disclosures made by the Department of Homeland Security Inspector General. Even 15 years since the 9-11 attacks, we still see a system that has not complied with the laws we have passed multiple times, and we see failures. Representative John Mika of Florida, um, chair of the House Transportation Subcommittee, said. Following the discovery last year of 73 aviation employees who are also listed on the nation's terror watch list, TSA has struggled to implement reforms aimed, at, aimed to remedy these security gaps, Mika said. TSA employees are not properly vetted, he said. We found that tens of thousands of incomplete records are even lacking full names. The TSA had 14,000 immigrants listed in the database that did not have alien registration numbers, and 75,000 of those records lacked passport numbers. This is not acceptable. Officials additionally could not account for hundreds and thousands of IDs that had gone missing, including TSA security badges, airport identity badges, and other identification. Everything you can imagine stolen, missing, or unaccounted for, Mika said. Here we are in 2016, 15 years after 9-11, and we don't know who's going in and who's going out. There's no way to ensure it. John Roth, the, trans the Department of Homeland Security Inspector General, provided a list of security flaws and inefficiencies in the TSA's employee screening process. In addition to not still having full access to the USA terror watch list, the TSA is incapable of verifying employees' criminal records. TSA is considerably challenged when it comes to verifying workers' criminal histories and immigration statuses, Roth said. TSA does not recurrently vet airport workers' criminal histories after they are initially cleared to work, but rely on individuals to self-report disqualifying crimes. Most employees do not follow this policy, he said. TSA cannot systematically determine whether individuals have been convicted of disqualifying crimes, Roth said, noting that commercial airports also do not hold on to these records. Due to the large workload involved, this inspection process looked at as few as 1% of all aviation workers' applications. Additionally, the records TSA does use for vetting individuals are not reliable as they contain complete or inaccurate data. At least 87,000 active aviation workers, or 10% of the total workforce, do not have social security numbers listed in their records, according to Roth. An additional 75,000 active employees' credentials listed the worker as a non-U.S. citizen but didn't include passport numbers. That number, 14,000, did not list an alien registration number, meaning they could be potentially undocumented. TSA did not have appropriate checks in place to reject records from such vetting, he said. Without complete and accurate info, TSA risked creating um, credentialing and providing unescorted access secure airport areas for a worker who could potentially harm the nation's transportation system. And are we surprised that um, no. so many are undocumented? No, it's, and, it's security theatre. <laughs> if Chuck can tell me if that's any better, I've turned up my volume a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I can hear you a little better. Yeah. Um, I can turn it up further if uh, people need to. Um, can you guys hear very? Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> If you can't, just let us know. Um, I'm like right up on top of my mic. I, I can move back. Okay, sounds better. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, there was that. And then there was something today I haven't vetted yet. I, I dropped it in the chat to you earlier where somebody went to the Hill and basically said that the Department of Homeland Security ordered them to erase terrorist uh, terrorism records on potential terrorists in the United States about 16 months before 9-11 happened. Well, 
If I can verify that, that'd be a bombshell, but I I can't. It's one of those hard things. Uh, It's hard to know whether to believe it or not, because, Mm -hmm. yeah, it sounds like something government would do, but on the other hand, it might just be somebody who's just pissed off and wants to cause a stir. Exactly, you know, and if I can't, I can't vet it, I'm not going to talk about it. I mean, I mentioned it, but I'm not going to discuss it. You can, just from that information I gave you, you can go in and find what this gentleman said, but that doesn't mean anything. Without hard proof, without some verification, that means nothing. And I have a problem with that. I have a real problem with that. So, yeah. Um, I'm... I hate Marco Rubio. I don't like Marco Rubio. I don't like Ted Cruz. I really don't like Ted Cruz. I think the funniest thing I saw, and I don't know if you saw it, did anybody else see the the picture of him trying to kiss his daughter? Like, not the picture. It's a gif. And it's like a live shot somebody took on their phone, I guess. He was trying to kiss her, and she's flipping out like, get away. It was pretty funny. Uh, Even his family has issues with him. I guess. Okay. Um, there's other stuff that I didn't mention. So, um, I guess I'll just keep reading. It's so weird not having Jeannie here. We have her here for a while and then we hit a streak where she's not doing well. And I hope she feels better. Okay. Europe's TARP court mulls the legality of hyperlinks. Shockwaves could be huge for web users. Imagine having to check that none of your links are unauthorized and so on. Europe's highest court is considering whether every hyperlink in a web page should be checked for potentially linking to material that infringes copyright before it can be used. Such a legal requirement would place an unreasonable burden on anyone who uses hyperlinks, thereby destroying the web we know and love. The current GS Media case examining hyperlinks builds on an earlier ruling by the European Court of Justice in 2014. In that case, known as Svensson, the court decided that Netsons didn't need a license from the copyright holder to link to an article that had already been posted on the internet where previous permission had been granted by the copyright owner. Although that was good news for the online world, it left open a related question. What would the situation be if that material was linked that was linked had not been posted with the copyright owner's permission. Would it still be legal under EU law to link to that pirated copy? Copy. Those are the issues that the latest CJEU case seems seeks to resolve for the whole of the 28 member state block and its 500 million citizens. The copyright industries have been blocking and undermining pro-user reforms for years. The Disruptive Competition Project has a good summary of the facts for the GS Media Saga. The Defendant is a popular Dutch blog that posted links to photos meant for publication in the Dutch version of Playboy magazine, but which were leaked on an Australian server. No one knows who posted the photos to the Australian server, but everyone agrees that the blog only posted links to them. The details of how the case finally arrived at CJEU are complicated and explained in a long post on the EU Law Radar blog. Even if the facts are convoluted, a ruling that hyperlinks are to unauthorized copies of material are themselves an infringement of copyright would clearly be disastrous for the online world. As the Disruptive Competition Project noted, 
If the CJEU rules that every web user in Europe and beyond is expected to verify the copyright status of every item on a page before linking to that page, it could effectively destroy the web as we know it today. Would you have to repeatedly check back on sites you link to in case the content on the site you link to has changed? Would you need to confirm that the licenses are all paid in full? Would you also have to var verify that the copyright status of links on pages you're linking to? Leaving aside the huge issue that ordinary web users can hardly be expected to make expert calls on the copyright status of online material, the last question asked, there is a potentially important one. If the answer is yes, it would mean that you would need to check the legality, not just of everything you link to, but also of everything that those linked pages link to, and so on, until every single link that is linked in any way has had its licensing checked. The manifest impossibility of doing so may weigh may well help the CJEU come to the common sense decision that even though posting material without the owner's permission can be copyright infringement, and even then it isn't always, providing a link to that infringing copy definitely isn't. Yeah. It's, Sounds like fun for you. Yeah, it's a mess. It's <laughs> never going to go through. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, well, yeah, the, it's kind of ridiculous. It wouldn't just be the internet that have trouble. Uh, despite the number of them, there just aren't enough copyright lawyers uh, to check the whole internet. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Because that's yeah. what it comes down to, you know. Yeah. There'd have to be people looking for the illegal links. Uh, and the I'm only people who can do that are copyright lawyers. So, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm just not doing it. I'm not... I'm not hiring a lawyer so I can stick links on a damn page. It's just not going to happen. Well, you yeah, know. I mean, th this is one of the ones where, yeah, the the uh, the court, if it's got a brain, it's going to consider it and go, yeah, that's well with outside our, <laughs> our uh, ability to enforce. Because um, it is. People will well, just deliberately, if if it came in, people would just deliberately start linking hundreds of web links <laughs> on their pages to loads of dodgy stuff. And what are they going to do then? Oh, God. You know. Cause, it, yeah, I mean, the, the government's can't run without the internet these days. <laughs> well, I so, mean, they yeah. can't run very well with it either, but I mean, that's besides the point, I guess. Um. It just seems like beyond the fantastic and into the ridiculous. I mean, common sense tells me that like news is kind of fair game. Do you know what I mean? A story is a story is a story. I've always felt that way. I mean, if I share some news and somebody else shares some news and somebody else shares some news, that's pretty much fair game, right? Pretty much these days. Pretty, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty much how it goes. It's just, I, I don't know. I, I mean, mean, is yeah, it the, just art that the, caused it? Well, not art. Cause I don't know. I guess Playboy's art. I mean, one one reason why the music and film industries um, aren't making as much money as they used to is they're spending so much money trying to block all the illegal stuff online. <laughs> it's just destroying their profits. You I know, mean, it's, it's really funny too because to they've doing. done they've they've asked they've asked people. You no, know, if you if you heard something on youtube or you've 
know, illegally downloaded something or you've gotten something from Pirate Bay, are you more likely to go out and buy that person's music? And the answer is like, absolutely, yes. Yeah. Unequivocally. And, you know, I hate to say it's true, but for me it is. You know, a lot of the stuff that I have that um, was obtained through murky circumstances, I've gone and bought physical copies of. Just because, you know, I like the idea of supporting artists, but it's also a different world now. Once you take, once you take art in one form or another and you turn it into ones and zeros and bits and bytes and data, it really does become a different business system. And it seems to me that there are better ways to make money from it that don't involve touring. And it's just funny to me that nobody's thought of them yet. Yeah. But the, I mean, everyone knows it, and I think didn't we talk about it last week? It's like, yeah, the the copyright laws are so out of date. Oh, they're ridiculous. I mean, I mean they're, they're still the they're basically still designed for. Yeah, I mean, it's basically still designed for physical vinyl records. Well, right, but cassettes. the TTP is not making the copyright laws any better. You realize no. what it said, right? Oh yeah, yeah. It Seventy years the after the yeah. the copyright holder's death. That's when all the copyright's going to cease to be now. Yeah, so still no singing happy birthday online, live, yeah. or somebody will sue you. <laughs> They'll come after you. It's just ridiculous. So, I mean, you would have to go to Louder, L-O-U-D-R's website, and get the rights to sing happy birthday. Yeah. Which is fucking ridiculous. Uh, louder is what exists for you to do... It's a licensing assurance thing. Yeah. Assuring the license holder gets paid. There's, there's loads of videos being taken down on YouTube because of that one. That's ridiculous. Just somebody filming their their child's birthday party and people are singing. That's it. Copyright infringement. Pulled down. How, how dare they? Yeah. <laughs> how dare you film your child's birthday party? All right. Oh boy. Yay. It's it's been a really interesting week. I guess I guess I'll go with the first one. Everything you need to know about the new big the big new data privacy bill in Congress. It's written by Eric Geller. The United States and the European Union have agreed to a transatlantic data sharing agreement to protect US companies overseas activities and European citizens' privacy, but not ours apparently. But another initiative, one that's still working its way through Congress, could be just as important to the U.S.-EU relations and translated privacy rights. The Judicial Redress Act is considered essential to a broader agreement between the U.S. and Europe over the sharing of data in a criminal and terrorism investigation. The negotiations over the newly announced EU-slash-U.S. privacy shield may have received more attention, but the concerns at the heart of this bill are no less important. Here's what you need to know about the Judicial Redress Act, a.k.a. H.R. 1428 in the House and S. 1600 in the Senate. What does the Judicial Redress Act do? The bill authorizes the Attorney General to extend the protections of the Privacy Act of 1974 to the citizens of designated foreign countries. The Privacy Act empowers Americans to challenge U.S. companies' disclosure of their private data to the government, as well as the government's use of the data and any inaccuracies resulting from federal records about them. Why is this important? 
government agencies regularly use warrants to compel U.S. tech companies to turn over user data, including that of foreigners, but only U.S. citizens relying on the Privacy Act can challenge those procedures. Americans and Europeans may differ on many questions of governance, but they agree that privacy and checks on government power are important. Privacy is considered a fundamental right in the European Union, akin to freedom of speech in the United States. What is the status of the bill? The House passed on its version on October 20th. It sailed through on a voice vote, indicating there was no opposition. The Senate is partway through its own process. The Judiciary Committee passed a modified version of the bill, and Senator Orrin Hatch is trying to move it through the full Senate by unanimous consent, meaning that if no senator objects, it can bypass the normal floor procedures. Are there any complications? Well, come on, it's Congress. Uh, the modified Senate version of the House bill includes an amendment that puts conditions on the Attorney General's ability to grant Privacy Act rights to foreigners. The amendment says that the Attorney General can only add foreign countries to the Privacy Act list if he or she certifies that, one, the country has a deal with the U.S. regarding privacy protections for data shared in the course of joint investigations or has effectively shared such information with the U.S., and adequately protects privacy. Two, the country allows U.S. companies to transfer its citizens' data between its territory and the United States. And three, the aforementioned data transfer agreement does not materially impede the national security interests of the United States. Why is this problematic? It's Congress. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, because conservative lawmakers are concerned that Privacy Shield, the newly announced data transfer agreement, will impede national security investigations. By requiring the Attorney General to certify otherwise, the amendment raises the bar for implementing the law. Senator John Cornyn of Texas, the amendment sponsor, has criticized the Obama administration for making concessions by pushing the Judicial Redress Act in order to secure the law enforcement data sharing agreement. Okay, so one senator hates the bill. Actually, at least two senators hate it. Gordon voted for it in the Senate Judiciary Committee thanks to the committee adopting his amendment, but Senator Jeff Sessions opposed even the Cornyn version. He is considered a possible impediment to Hatch's efforts to fast-track the bill through the full Senate. Okay, who's on the other side? Who's pressing for the bill? The U.S. tech industry. In a letter to House leaders a few days before the lower chamber passed the bill, a coalition of leading tech companies and trade groups called it a critical step in rebuilding the trust of citizens worldwide in both the U.S. government and our, and our industry. So, yeah, there's that. I know that was dry. Sorry. It's, all this well, legal stuff is very dry. Go ahead. At, at least they're trying to get some privacy for you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you know, after the fact. Yeah. You know, it's... It's kind of like, hey, everybody's seen you naked. Um, we're going to pull the drapes now, which is kind of ridiculous. Yeah. But that's kind of how things tend to go here. I did and like it's, the, it's, the one this mm -hmm. week as well where, was it GCHQ had been asking the NSA for permission to uh, get data out of America. Um, I'm like, well, they've never asked before. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why suddenly they started asking. <laughs> because they've been caught. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I don't even know about that. Hang on. Um. So I'll get to the Utah story in a minute. Okay. UK wants authority to serve warrants in the U.S. Is that the one you're talking about? Yes. Okay. British and U.S. officials have been negotiating a plan 
that can allow British authorities to directly serve wiretap orders on U.S. communications companies and criminal and national security inquiries, U.S. officials confirmed Thursday. The talks are aimed at allowing British authorities access to a range of data, including interceptions of live communications to archived emails involving British suspects, according to officials who are not authorized to comment publicly. The negotiations were first reported Thursday by the Washington Post. Under the proposed plan, British authorities would not have access to the records of U.S. citizens if they emerged in British investigations. Congressional approval would be required of any deal negotiated by the two countries. One of the U.S. officials said the talks were necessary because of the increasing immediacy of developing criminal enterprise and potential terror plots that are playing out in various communication platforms around the globe, like PS4. The official said the talks have sought to preserve privacy protections that have been at the center of recent U.S. debate over access to Americans' telephone records that were part of a formerly secret program disclosed by former National Security Agency contractor Edward Snowden. These communications are happening with the speed of light, and law enforcement agencies must keep pace with these communications, the officials said. A separate official said any agreement would also be designated to provide equal benefits for U.S. law enforcement and national security authorities in U.S. investigations. Such an agreement would ensure U.S. access to data stored in the United Kingdom in support of law enforcement, terrorism, and other transitional threat investigations and support our partners' ability to investigate serious crime as well as terrorism and other transitional threats on a reciprocal basis, that official said. Yeah, let's say it makes me laugh because they've been sharing data for years. Oh yeah, they're and, part and, of the and five now eyes. Snowden blew the lid off it. Now, now they're going. Oh, can we, can we please officially <laughs> get that information from you? Yeah, we need permission to do what we've been doing all along. Yeah, which is kind of funny. So yeah, all all the good stuff really. That's what they do. They do all the good stuff. Um. I'm not really sure what to say about it. I've got to say, there really isn't anything that surprises me that the government says or does anymore, yours or mine. Yeah. You know what I mean? I am. Um, I don't. Oh yeah, know I mean if... they'll they'll t- they they tell the public one thing and do something completely different behind closed doors. So, of course, yeah. and then they get caught and they're like, "Oh my," <laughs> which is just kind of funny. Um, yeah. I gotta say, some of this stuff really bugs me. I mean, more than I thought it would. The more I know about it, the less comfortable I am with the level of intimacy my government has with my information. You know, it's 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 on a level that only someone who knows me would understand. And yet none of these people know me or know anything about me. And they're allowing algorithms to make decisions about my data. I'm not happy with that. I like the way you described that, though. That it's bugging you. Because <laughs> that's, that's what they're doing. <laughs> that's what they're doing to all of us, really. Yeah. I mean, they're watching everything we do. And they're collecting it. You have Smurfs turning on the microphone on your phone so they can listen. Uh, yeah. I mean, if if you only know about X key score and you don't know about anything else, you're really fucked. Um, 
next key score is pretty bad. Muscular was bad. Um, none of the programs that we officially know about are really any good. Um, what I recommend is there's a video from the Chaos Computer Conference. I think it was the 2014 one. And it, it should be called To Protect and Infect. And if you want to really know what your government is doing and what it can do and the technology it has to spy on you, that thing will be an eye-opener. It, it really will be. And there's very little you can do to protect yourself. Um, if we owned... If we had the ability to actually make our own computers and phones, that would help a lot. But we don't. Um, but it, it's kind of why I say... I think the only solution to this stuff is to make snooping on us as expensive as humanly possible so that it's unaffordable for governments to continue to do it. Um, and that needs to be like a global thing. Or, or you can just do what 99% of people on Facebook seem to be doing and just talk a load of nonsense all the time. Um. <laughs> I guess. Um, yeah. I, I don't I, I love this. I'm just I'm getting messages on Facebook. I'm I'm shutting down Facebook right now. Um somebody else is telling me, Oh, this this podcast you listen to, somebody's on the air on another podcast. Right I can't listen to this right now. I'm sorry. <laughs> um I'm kinda doing something here. You know, it doesn't seem like much, but I am doing something. Okay. Um the FBI says it can't disclose its records. Guess why? Because it doesn't feel like it. <laughs> no, because then the public would know how the FBI works. But we already know how the FBI works. Badly. <laughs> Badly, shadily, and in the shadows. Um, granting the ACLU and the public access to staffing, budgetary, and statistical information about the Boston Joint Terrorism Task Force and FBI would mean the public would know where the FBI was putting its resources, warned an assistant U.S. attorney in an oral argument in a Boston federal court last week. The government apparently doesn't want the public to know anything about how the FBI and JTTF spend public money, staff their offices, or conduct investigations. Heaven forbid the public know where the FBI puts its resources. In December 2013, the ACLU of Massachusetts sent an FOI request to the FBI, which sought basic information about the structure and operations of the Boston Joint Task Force and the Boston FBI field office. Amid the information the FBI redacted from its responsive disclosures were all budget figures. The number of FBI state and local officials tasked to work on the Boston Joint Terrorism Task Force and the number of assessments, preliminary investigations, and full investigations the Boston FBI conducted over two years ago. Well, it would be over three years ago now. It's odd that the government is resisting disclosure of these records, given that in 2011 it gave Charlie Savage of the New York Times similar information. According to the government, this information is exempt from public disclosure under the Freedom of Information Act pursuant to Exemption 7E, the part of the federal statute that says agencies do not have to disclose records that would reveal law enforcement techniques or procedures. But as ACLU of Massachusetts Staff Attorney Jesse Rosman argues, staffing 
budgetary and statistical information about caseloads do not reveal techniques or procedures. The stakes for the public are high if the court agrees with the government's reasoning and denies the public access to this information. It would put the federal judiciary stamp of approval on what attorney Rossman rightfully argues the FBI is seeking in this case, a categorical FOIA exemption for all law enforcement information. As Rossman said last week during oral arguments, that's not what Congress intended when it wrote the Freedom of Information Act. If lawmakers intended to bar the public from accessing all law enforcement records, they would have written that into the FOIA statute, which they didn't. At issue is the ongoing litigation over FBI redactions is whether the public can hold law enforcement agencies accountable for how they spend our money and act in our names. If we don't know anything about how law enforcement agencies operate, we can't hold them accountable. Unaccountable law enforcement is not only bad for freedom, it also harms public safety. As history demonstrates, when the FBI is allowed to conduct its business in the dark, precious government resources are invariably dedicated to spying on people who threaten the status quo, but do not threaten their fellow Americans. While anti-democratic in the extreme, it's easy to understand why the FBI wants to keep its budget staffing and investigations statistics secret from the public. While the public learned about the FBI's illegal and anti-democratic Conintelpro operations in the 1970s, this is written by the ACLU of Boston, not me. Um, in the 1970s, the Attorney General imposed rules forbidding the FBI from spying on people unless agents could show the targets were likely violating the law. After 9-11, those rules were scrapped. The new guidelines allow FBI agents to open investigations called assessments against people absent any suspicion of wrongdoing. Since 9-11, the Bureau has been free to spy on people it doesn't suspect of criminal activity, supposedly because suspicionless investigations are required during a permanent state of the war on terror. The ACLU is litigating for this information because we want to know what results from the FBI's suspicionless investigations, known as assessments. If it's true, we suspect that there are thousands of FBI assessments, but comparatively few preliminary or full investigations, let alone arrests or su successful prosecutions. It confirms what we and other civil libertarians have been saying for over a decade, namely allowing the FBI to spy on people absent criminal predicates isn't just bad for civil liberties, it's bad for law enforcement. If agents are routinely chasing down leads that go nowhere, those agents are wasting their time spying on ordinary people on the public's dime. Hang on a second. I'm sorry, I need to take a drink. The ACLU is very long-winded. <clears throat> the FBI refuses to give us this information, which is part of the reason we sued. In essence, the government argues the information must remain secret because if disclosed, it will tip off terrorists to the fact that the government wants to investigate crimes. But hiding from the public records revealing how many assessments, preliminary investigations, and full investigations the Boston FBI office has conducted doesn't protect public safety. Instead, it obstructs precisely the kind of public accountability that would make the FBI better at protecting the public from people who mean us harm. The case of Tamirian Sarnev illustrates this point. The FBI investigated Tamerlan back in 2011, less than two years before he blew up the Boston Marathon, killing three people and injuring hundreds. When the FBI discovered photos of he and his brother at the marathon, they knew they had their suspects. But according to the Bureau, officials at the Boston office couldn't put names to their faces, despite the fact that JTTF officials in Boston had interviewed 
the one brother on numerous occasions as part of its terrorism investigation against him. Though the FBI says it first found the brothers in surveillance images on Wednesday after the attacks, officials say they only positively identified the Sarnevs on early Friday morning when they fingerprinted Tarnalan's dead body. Lots of chaos occurred in the intervening two days. The brothers allegedly killed police officer Sean Collar, carjacked a man engaged in a firefight where they threw bombs on the streets of suburban Watertown, Massachusetts. As a former Watertown police chief said, reflecting on the harrowing week, if the FBI had put the brothers' names to their faces back on Wednesday, officials could have arrested them before they went on their dangerous killing spree, saving the Boston area $1 billion in lost revenue as the city was put under what resembled martial law and saving Sean Collier his life. But for some reason, despite having investigated the elder Sarnev for terrorism less than two years before the attacks, no one at the Boston FBI field office recognized him. Could it be because the FBI is wasting its time and muddying up its internal operations, spying on people who happen to be Muslim, black or dissident? People, FBI agents can't find any evidence to show are engaged in serious crimes because they aren't. Access to records revealing how many assessments, preliminary investigations, and full investigations the FBI conducts would help the public understand whether the FBI is tying its own shoes together by allowing its agents to conduct suspicionless investigations it would help us answer this troubling question. Does the FBI really conduct so many investigations that its own agents couldn't remember Ternalian, a person its agents met? with repeatedly and investigated on suspicion of involvement in terrorism less than two years before the attacks, taxpayers deserve to know, and contrary to the DOJ's absurd and dangerous claims in federal court, disclosing how many of these investigations, etc., conducted many years ago would not tip terrorists off to FBI techniques or procedures or endanger the public. As the, past, as the last case illustrates, the opposite is true. Only when law enforcement agencies are subject to rigorous transparency can the public hold them accountable for their actions, thereby making them more effective at protecting public safety. The FBI has a long and dirty history of spying on dissidents and activists instead of investigating and building cases against people who do real harm to Americans, like the bankers who collapsed the U.S. and world economy in 2008. So it's easy to see why the government doesn't want the public to learn any meaningful information about the inner workings of the Bureau. But government agencies can't keep information secret from the public because it would reveal something embarrassing or unconstitutional. And the records at issue don't reveal techniques or procedures. Here's to hoping the federal court agrees and compels the FBI to release this basic information about how it spends our money and acts in our names. Only then will we have any meaningful access to judge how the Bureau is conducting itself and so the opportunity to exert some democratic accountability over its operations. Well, yeah. They're trying to keep everything secret. The the bit I find funny, it's like, oh, we can't give you this information on the budget because, you know, it might lead you to know how we operate. It's like, what, you mean, like, all the books by ex-FBI guys telling everyone how you operate. <laughs> and you know which ones to go and read because it's the one... That, the, the books to read are the ones the government tried to stop getting published. <laughs> So you go and read them, and you'll know everything anyway. It's really so. funny. It, I think I mentioned last week that I, I actually bought the book um, Shadow Government. Yeah, I, I actually bought like three or four books by people who talk about like the government inside the government, 
the people we elect and then the people in like FBI field offices and then their subcontractors and how those subcontractors are the ones who basically tell you what's going on. Not tell you, but they basically run the show. And then, of course, the people you elect have no accountability. I mean, this is kind of that sort of mess. They want to be able to do what it is they want to do. They don't want to be accountable to us, but they want us to keep digging into our paychecks and giving them more and more money so they can act like this. And that's wrong. I mean, that's flat out wrong. I don't. In the case of the FBI, they're they're, they 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 just wish it was still the era of Hoover of um, Hoover, (laughs) so where they could basically do what they liked and nobody asked them any questions. And Hoover could dress up like a woman. Oh, did I say that out loud? (laughs) Don't worry, he's definitely not not listening. (laughs) I just I find it amazing that they aren't required to just turn over basic information. Yeah. I mean, it's stuff but that... They've been playing this game f- for years. Oh, I know, but I'm Every just saying, time this you is put in basic information. When you work anywhere, this is basic information you're required to give to your boss. Yeah. Don't... Aren't we their boss? They're not ours? So or am this, I just misunderstanding yeah. how this works? The, this amount of secrecy... You know, you could bring up some interesting questions. So somebody decides to leave the FBI and goes get gets a job with a private security firm. Right. The private security firm won't be able to vet the person for the job because all the information they're going to ask the FBI for will be denied. Yeah, you know, it, no, you it, can't have that. <laughs> Why? It might give away <laughs> secrets to how we work. Well... <laughs> We I don't just know, maybe ask the, the guy. He's sitting in front of us. <laughs> maybe the FBI needs to just spend its time investigating the TSA and how they work. There's a job. Sick that, the government that, that on the government. A, yeah, that would be a huge... Well, the FBI investigate other government departments anyway. Oh, I know, but I'm just saying. I mean, it's such a huge clusterfuck. You know? Sick government on government, and then it's like the never-ending story, Right. There's that, no end. That's part. That's, that'll be one of the reasons why they don't want their budgets uh, looked at. It's because all these government agencies spend an awful lot of time keeping an eye on each other. You know, and, and I, I think this takes up more of their budgets than they'd like anyone to know. Probably, but I mean, it also brings up something that's kind of uncomfortable: redundancy. Right. So, you know, I'm not one for being spied on. Everybody knows exactly how I feel about privacy because I mince no words. Um, And yet, I don't think 30 or 40 agencies, some we don't even know about, some, I mean, we talked about it before. My government doesn't know exactly how many agencies operate under it. They, they, no public office holder can come to an agreement on the number of individual offices involved in government. There's so many of them now, no one can keep fucking track of them. Okay. I don't think an unlimited number of government officials should be allowed to have access to material about me or you or or anyone else. There should just be like one, right? So there should just be one and all the rest of these hacks should lose their fucking jobs. 
because this is costing us a ridiculous amount of money. It's costing us a ridiculous amount of privacy. And if I believe the ACLU, it's also costing us safety and quite a lot of it, yeah. security. If, if their job is to keep us safe and secure and they're endangering us, disband them. That's, that's, like, that's like a crime against humanity. I mean, not so much, but you understand what I'm saying, right? It, I don't understand how it's conscionable to allow that to continue. So, yeah. Anyway, I've had my rant, I guess, for the evening. Um, <laughs> can you guys still hear us? Because I know there's going to be some delay tonight just because of the weather. So. Well, nobody's complaining, so. Nobody's complaining, so it must be okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Mm, let's see. I don't know. The empty wheel thing is really wordy. I don't know that I want to do that. Okay. This, this, here's an article that originally appeared at who, what, and why, which is actually a really good investigative source. Um, they do some journalism that is fucking weird, and they do some journalism that's. You know, spot on. This is one of the spot on things. This is called paging George Orwell. Big Brother is getting even bigger in China. In a development that the author of 1984 would surely have appreciated, China recently passed an anti-terrorism law that seems fundamentally an excuse for a clampdown. It also eerily minors calls by U.S. officials for access to encrypted communications. China's law requires telecommunications and other companies to decrypt and hand over data related to terrorism investigations. And who is a terrorist? Just about anyone. Terrorism is so vaguely defined in the law, prosecutors could use it to criminalize perfectly innocent activities. Patrick Poon, a Hong Kong-based researcher for Amnesty International, told Who, What, Why. These can include posting on social media about sensitive topics, reporting on alleged terror attacks, or any behavior deemed upsetting to, quote, social stability. Failure to hand over decrypted data could result in fines of up to 500,000 yuan, a bit over 76,000 U.S. dollars, and imprisonment of up to 15 days. Human rights groups have roundly criticized the law for the broad powers it confers to the Chinese government. It's not just individuals who are in danger. A legal review from Lexology notes that the Chinese law does not define the terms telecommunications operators or internet service providers. This means almost any company, Chinese or foreign, that provides any technological service could be targeted. China and U.S. sing the same tune on encryption. Explaining why the government needs such wide-ranging access to internet communication, Foreign Ministry spokesman Hong Li said, it is imperative for us to prevent and crack down on cyber-enabled terrorist crimes. Telesurface operators and network service providers shall provide technical support, such as technological interface and decryption to public and national security organs in their mission to prevent and investigate terrorist activities. Sound familiar? Compare it with the congressional testimony of Federal Bureau of Investigations Director James Comey. Changing forms of internet communication and the use of encryption are posing real challenges. The United States government is actively engaged with private companies to ensure they understand the public safety and national security risks that result from malicious actors' use of encrypted products and services. 
Poon emphasized that the parallels go only so far. U.S. citizens have many more legal protections and mechanisms that allow you to challenge the government's actions. If you're trying to find a needle in a haystack, you don't add more hay first, he said, unless you want to turn it into a massive surveillance police state. Being able to look at everything is not going to get you very far. Targeted stuff, narrowing in on the right people, is more likely to get you what you really need. But the parallels are there. Last March, President Barack Obama criticized a draft version of China's anti-terrorist law for its unseeming overreach. He said that U.S. tech companies would not be willing to turn over to the Chinese government mechanisms where they could snoop and keep track of all users of those services. So Obama should not have been surprised when U.S. tech executives resisted calls by American law enforcement officials for just such mechanisms. Apple CEO Tim Cook, for example, has repeatedly defended the need for unbreakable encryption. Yet the drumbeat for granting U.S. spy agencies exceptional access to Internet communications continues. Keys under doormats. In more recent congressional testimony, Kami argued for allowing the government a so-called backdoor into all normally encrypted internet communications. He dismissed folks who have said, we're going to break the internet or we'll have unacceptable security if we try to get to a place where court orders are complied with, and insisted that encryption is, quote, not a technical issue. Stephen Belovin is one of the folks who insists encryption is a technical issue. A computer science professor at Columbia, <clears throat> Belovin co-wrote a paper with 14 other prominent academics in July called Keys Under Doormats. The paper detailed the technical infeasibility of exceptional access mechanisms in addition to the thorny societal and logistical questions of such mechanisms and what they would raise. We just don't think people can get this right, Belovin told who, what, why. It's a very hard problem. Attempting to implement exceptional access mechanisms, according to the paper, would undermine cybersecurity by reversing normal security measures. At risk would be so-called forward security, an added security measure that prevents intruders from decrypting communications and authentication. Think of that little padlock icon that appears in your web browser when you say log into your bank account. In addition, any government backdoor would likely introduce unanticipated, hard-to-detect security flaws due to the sheer complexity of today's internet environment. These arguments have not dissuaded American officials from trying to follow in China's footsteps by insisting on exceptional government access to all encrypted communications, of course, always in the name of fighting terrorism and with no acknowledgement that this access could ever be abused. Whether or not China will be able to implement its law on a technical level remains to be seen. Belovin, however, thinks U.S. intelligence agencies should focus on analyzing pre-existing data rather than trying to collect even more data. If you're trying to find a needle in a haystack, you don't need to find, you don't need to add more hay. Um, in George Orwell's 1984, the world is divided into three megastates that are in constant conflict, although they are alike in exercising cradle to grave control over their citizens when it comes to an appetite for keeping an eye on everyone big brother knows no nationality well yeah i mean the <laughs> the the overarching government watching what you do yeah Ch china's a bit ahead of everybody else on that one yeah it's the fact uh, they already do um get a lot of information from the US, Europe, yeah. etc. Because yeah. they build all the hardware. <laughs> <laughs> In 
Um, uh, if I'm sounding tinny, I apologize. It it might be my mic, but I also I think I'm coming down with a cold. I can hear it in my nose. Uh, um, I'm listening to the output as I always do, and it seems fine at our end. But what happens to it after it leaves here? Uh, who knows? Mixler is is a funny system. Put it that way. Mixler is what adds actually a lot of noise to the output when you're doing when you're doing this the way we're doing it it adds a lot of noise um and it, it i think it's hilarious because how long did it take them to write an update this last time so that you could use it yeah i mean it's just it's it's almost as bad as btr was in the beginning they're just not keeping up with technological advances, which is kind of sad because they're actually a really good service. Um, I don't know. Well, Alex will be on in just a couple of minutes, so I don't really want to go into another story. Um, so that should be fun. You know, this, <laughs> this really is a fun two-hour dig deal, isn't it, Barry? Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> It's something. All right. I mean, geez, I mean, it's it's Monday. At least I get to hear about some different news. Normally, I'm looking at the news and listening about just what my own government's up to. You know what's kind of nice? I, I kind of like to throw in UK stories or stories about China or things like that because it's good to see that every government is doing the same thing. Yeah. Right? They're They're all overreaching. Oh yeah, to I mean, same they, degree. And, and none of them seem to understand the internet at all. It's really quite strange. Um, well, I th mm, it's hard to say, it? but I think the British government—well, not the government, but people <laughs> working for the government, GCHQ. <laughs> yeah, they understand it because they helped develop it. But <laughs> as to the normal. Well, I mean, look, what, look yeah. at what one of the Congress people said when they asked him about the Internet. The Internet is a series of tubes. Yeah. What? <laughs> Anyone who's watched um, the IT crowd, yeah. the episode with the Internet, hilarious. I, I just... Just a box I don't... with Internet written on it and a light. <laughs> and they... Just, I don't get it. I don't get... I'm no engineer, but even I understand the internet is just not a series of fucking tubes, and it's not just where cats live, and it's not just where you go to find porn or, or whatever. But no, it's, um, for, it's for looking at porn and bitching about movies. And Jay and Silent Bob are correct. <laughs> yeah, but it's more than a series of tubes. Yeah. Um. Well, it's almost time for Alex, you guys. Almost time for the cassette update. I shall go find him. No, I'm not asking Al Gore shit. He didn't invent anything. Wait, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he he invented carbon credits, whereby he can drive a gigantic Hummer and leave his lights on twenty four seven, and still feel okay by paying penalty. Good, Good evening, evening Alex. Alex. Good evening. Good evening and welcome to the Cassat update for the week of 2 8 2016. 
what's new and exciting this week, Alex? <laughs> um, several things. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Mondays are always fun for this. Um, oh, yeah. Well, uh, I guess, let's see, what did we do last week? Man, it's kind of hard to keep track. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a so long list. Yeah. I, I guess the... Let's see, where do we start? Where do we start? Last week. Okay, so uh -huh. after, after we got done last week, right. um, we issued a call to action for Hawaii. Okay. Um, this is for a tax... Um, it's a, a yet-to-be-specified tax, uh, and I was just checking out to see how the committee hearing went on Saturday of, right. of all days. Yes, this is Saturday. Who, wait, what Hawaii. government actually does meetings on a Saturday? That's I guess if you, if you live in Hawaii, it's just, I mean, it's you're in a tropical paradise anyway. So <laughs> I guess if you have to work on a Saturday, it maybe isn't that big of a deal. I don't know. But, I guess. Um, this committee, um, it's, it's CPH Committee on Public Health, I guess that would be it. Um, okay. They met on Saturday the 6th, mm -hmm. um, and this bill passed through the committee. Uh, it was with a due pass uh, vote. Uh, okay. I guess that's unanimous, four votes. There's, the committees in Hawaii are very small. Okay. So some of them are some of these committees consist of like two people. Okay. Um, I think, if I have that correct. Um, so <laughs> oh. this had four yes votes. Okay. Um, and oh, so it's, it's actually seven people on this committee. Four yes votes and three people were excused. Um, okay. So uh, this says passed with amendments, but there's no updated uh, version of the bill on the site. Okay. So. I don't know what those amendments are. I suspect they actually inserted actual numbers amounts. Yeah, numbers yeah. on there. Um, so that's kind of the preliminary update on Hawaii. We'll add some more substance to that once the okay. substance materializes. <laughs> um, but uh, this is one of a few tax bills that have been introduced or carried over in Hawaii this year. Uh, okay. This just happens to be the one that's moving and. Uh, we're keeping an eye on it. Um, so that's the end of Hawaii. Okay. Um, Oregon. Let me just see if I'm sticking to okay. chronological order here. Um, another tax bill in Oregon. Okay. Um, let's see. This was the 50% tax on oh, the retail yeah. price of vapor products. That's including liquids and devices. Nice. Um, I think we had spoken about this before. So anyway, this yeah. had its uh, it had another had a, a working session on the fifth, okay. and um, let's see. I was just looking at this page. It is moving to another committee. Uh, okay. So it was on the House Committee on Healthcare, and okay. now it moves to the House Committee on Revenue. Okay. No, well, uh, no hearing date set for that. Okay that I know of, but that meets on, uh, that meets four days out of the week. Um, so, uh, we're, we're keeping an eye on that as well. Okay. Uh, I just 
Did I just lose my place? Okay, so that's HB4062. And um, we will update that as soon as we know more. Okay. Close that one down. And then we had a couple of local alerts that came out. Um, but just in sticking with the chronological theme here, um, I was able to get out of the house on Saturday mm -hmm. and um, go visit with Chris Hughes in his shop in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. Okay. Uh, for those that don't know, Chris Hughes is the Pennsylvania chairperson for the, the Safata chapter there. Um, okay. And uh, it was kind of an off week for him because he had spent a couple days in D.C. with mm -hmm. the Safata fly-in down there. Um, and uh, apparently it's been kind of an off month uh, in, in general. And in, uh, January into February can be kind of a, a low point for, for retail um, or just generally anything. From what I remember, you have people's uh, credit card bills are coming due for Christmas and whatnot. <laughs> yeah. um, so it, everything tends to slow down. But one of the things that they, that some of the other vendors were discussing was that um, I think people are very concerned about the negative media coverage <laughs> and how it's yeah. affecting people's business. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, this is something that we're seeing. It's, it's, it, the, the issue is glaring in Chicago, obviously, because they have this horrible campaign going on. Yeah. So, you know, we actually are hearing accounts of people walking into vapor shops saying, yeah, but I hear that this will give me some horrible lung disease. Um, or, yeah. you know, well, that billboard says this is poison. So yeah. I don't know if this is going to be a good alternative for me. Um, so I, I, I think, you know, personally, I'm hearing more of this. I think generally people are experiencing this more. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's, it's obviously unfortunate. Um, and um, I think we're all working on strategies to, you know, find a way to push back. So yeah. anyway, that was, that was, that was, it's, it's, so, you know, I spend most of my time behind a keyboard working on, you know, looking at legislation and, 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 and putting together these calls to action. So it is actually very important for me to get out and um, experience what, what our vape, what our vape shop people well, are experiencing yeah. you know what their perspective is um well it's, so anyway. it's kind of it's kind of funny i uh i was and this means nothing but uh, i was vaping outside work and i experienced my first hand waves and fake coughs oh yeah right after right after the chicago stuff started yeah so i just think it's funny you know um but anyway that's neither here nor there um, yeah. Anyway, uh, Chris, Chris was a great host and I had a really good time. The turnout was really, really low, but, um, I did have some good conversations with some other people, some other Pennsylvania vendors and, um, Williamsport is actually a really nice little town. So, um, nice. if you're ever cruising through Pennsylvania and you're along I-80, uh, don't be shy about popping up to Williamsport. Um, <laughs> no one... No, the Chamber of Commerce or Tourism didn't pay me to say that. I just, you know, I... I, I <laughs> you just threw a we, nice plug their way. We drove around a little bit. I have a, a soft spot in my heart for all of Pennsylvania. I lived there for, you know, a long time. So 
it was uh, it was it was a nice place. It was a very very impressive and and gorgeous historical district. Um, so anyway, that's awesome. enough of the travel blog. Um, <laughs> so um, all of that aside, let's slam back into reality here. Um, we got a couple of local alerts to bring up. Um, the first, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Alameda County, California. Okay. Um, they have a um, uh, county supervisors meeting tomorrow. Okay. Um, at 10:45 in the morning, <laughs> and uh, this is regarding a tobacco retailer license ordinance. Um, Again, uh, we just updated this to update the time, essentially, and to encourage people in Alameda County to send emails to uh, Board President Haggerty, Scott Haggerty. Okay. Um, the, some feedback we've gotten from uh, Bob Swanson, who is on staff with Supervisor Nate Miley, right. um, is, is this is like the third time, second or third time that this hearing has been rescheduled. If I can, if I got this right, um, yeah, this is actually kind of a. If you look at our call to action, um, it, we've just been updating this since uh, December. Um, <laughs> so this is this has been dragging on. Um, I, I believe Alameda County was was the one that uh, there was enough pushback against an indoor use ban. Um, so that, that got resolved, but now they're still looking at this licensing issue. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's a separate vapor retailer licensing scheme that they're, that they're working out, working into a different ordinance, but I think they want to take care of this tobacco retailers ordinance first, um, and get that right. hopefully just tabled and, and. Right. Keep that off the thing. So, if you live in Alameda County, by all means, please send an email to um, Board President Haggerty and let him know that, that you're opposed to this. Nice. Um, so, that is Alameda County. Um, the other local alert that's, for whatever reason, not popping up in the local alert feed <clears throat> um, Albany County, New York. Okay. Which, again, we're with the New York County legislatures, um, <clears throat> which is just, I don't know if it's really, I don't know if bizarre is the word, but um, <laughs> I, and I, I don't really know how effective it is. But, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I, I'm, I'm still trying to kind of wrap my head around the process here <laughs> because I had to go back and correct this. Okay. So it's on the agenda for public hearing. It's item number 73 on the agenda, which is linked in our call to action. Right. And this is for a meeting uh, tomorrow, February 9th. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm dry. <laughs> yeah, I, I hear you. Me too. Um, but as it turns out, this public hearing, you can't see the air quotes, <laughs> is simply to schedule the real public hearing what? for Tuesday, <laughs> February 23rd. I know. <clears throat> I'm sorry. That's so bizarre. 
that's the big bold information that we have on the call to action, which is that this bill will be heard open for public hearing on February 23rd, which is sort of a shocking amount of notice, to be honest. Um, But this is a tobacco 21 bill, uh, and it would raise the age, the minimum age to purchase all tobacco products and vapor products to 21. Um, And so we've included contact information for everyone that we can track down. Okay. Um, There are... 39 legislators in the county of Albany. Um, So, and then the other thing to just point out in case there are any other, in case there are any Albany County residents that are listening, um, if you want to do the kind of proper thing and reach out to your county legislator, um, I provided the link to find your district. Um, I just want to give everybody the kind of advance notice so you don't just don't get discouraged. Um, it's that link takes you to a table with all 39 districts. It's just it's just a grid table all thing right. mm-hmm. hyperlinked on you click on your district. Okay. If you don't know your district, mm-hmm. you're gonna have to hunt for it. Okay. It's not a convenient map that breaks down the county by district. Mm-hmm. It's a table, and you just click on each one until you find the outline of where you kind of live. Right. And that's how you find your district. And then you can come back to our convenient list and, and send your county legislator an email. Right. Um, I am just kind of obviously a bit baffled and confused by how on the surface these county legislature websites appear to be all about information and transparency but when you actually try to when I want to go <laughs> and find it's it is exceedingly difficult to find an agenda right. I I don't think I actually found the agenda successfully through their website. It was, it exists somewhere (laughs) on the Albany County legislature website. It exists, but that's not how I got it. I got it in an email from someone that provides us with information. You know, (laughs) is it really shocking to you though, how murky it is? It's, I mean, the, the, the cynical, like, you know, the the person I am that exists in the world, mm-hmm. no, it's not shocking to me. I expect it, which is unfortunate. Right. But at my core, I mean, it just, it, I mean, trying to look at it objectively, like, oh, hey, this is a government website. I should be able to go here and find what I need. Thank you very much, government, that, you know, <laughs> if I lived there, I would be paying for this service mm-hmm. already. Like, this is what I expect from government is right. access to information and, you know, forms and explanations about things and being able to review the laws. If I'm a business owner in a county right. and I want to set up shop, I, I want to go research the laws and make sure that I'm compliant because sure. that's just a good thing to do. Um, and maybe there's an issue that's going to come before 
the county legislature that I might be interested in and I might need to participate in. I, I, I should find out about that hearing. I may have yeah. something to say. Exactly. All of those things, that's, you know, that's, that's democracy. But these websites are built so poorly. Like, and I, I don't know if I pitched this before, and right. I, I don't really think there's a whole lot of money in this idea. Mm-hmm. But if there are some, you know, crafty internet entrepreneurs out there, right. you might be able to sell this to some government bodies that you can come in and make their websites more um, effective, I think. Do you, and I sent you the link. Um, you remember that video I sent you where it, it talked about, it was saying that people aren't, the people aren't cynical. People really do want to participate in government, but the government makes it so obtuse they can't. Yeah, I think I tweeted out a, a screenshot from that. Um, TED, yeah. It's a TED Talk. Yeah, I it is. I believe it's, it's a former, was he a former mayor or a former city council person from? Yeah. Uh, I it, want to say it's Berkeley in, it, yeah. or Oakland. Yeah, and and he talks about how if you look at, say, an ad for shoes, you know that shoes are on sale and this is the style and this is when the sale starts and this is when the sale ends. But when mm-hmm. you go to look for a story about the government, you know, it's just so obscure you, you can't find any information and it makes it really hard to participate in a participatory system. Mm-hmm. like by design and and i think that's what we're kind of running into here yeah i think some of it is is a a, a consequence of, of having to be straight like it's it's just a bare bones kind of straightforward like to some extent they're required to post the language of the law or you know right. whatever there's, there's some legal stuff there i think that's involved but right. the one of the one of the things that they do point out is that you know when you see a, a, a public post for a city council hearing or a particular issue, yeah. it's, 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 you know, it's very dry and there's the language of the ordinance or whatever that's posted first. And then somewhere way down at the bottom, you can find the date and time and yeah. place. Yeah. Maybe you can find the place. That's the other problem I had with, I have with a couple of sites is that right. I, I'm, you know, on one hand, the, the, I think the, the county legislatures are a good example. The the legislature offices, the, the address that's actually on the agenda is right. the address for the office or like where the county legislature is located, like where you would send mail to. But where they have their hearing is a completely different building. I, I think it's in the neighborhood, but it's it's a completely different address. So, and I, you find that a, a couple of times. You'll see one address for something but the actual hearing is going to be somewhere completely different and you actually have to hunt for that um so yeah anyway i'm getting up but yeah it's it's if you had to advertise retail goods the same way that city council hearings or whatever is is i can't even say advertised um no they don't but for (laughs) lack of a better term advertised um no one would buy anything ever no we we, no, no. we would all be running naked in the streets or just <laughs> I think burlap sacks. That's with holes cut out in them. That would be Maybe. the style. <laughs> garbage bags. Nice garbage yeah. bag suit. So 
Um, we've gone sufficiently off track here, but just to bring it back around, uh, okay. if you live in Albany County, we do have a call to action up for you. Everybody who lives in Albany County should have gotten an email. Um, but uh, this is a great opportunity. We have a lot of lead time on this to send emails. Um, Tobacco 21 policies are steamrolling across the country. Oh, yeah. uh, this is, in my opinion, this is superfluous feel-good legislation. Um, oh, yeah. And I think in Kassar's perspective, on Kassar's position on this is that the fact that it's including low-risk alternatives in this law is bad. And, and generally speaking, the course of action will be to oppose it entirely. Right. Um, because the likelihood of low-risk alternatives getting carved out uh, is is very slim. Right. But if a Tobacco 21 law comes along and it has carved out low-risk options, um, then I, I don't think we're necessarily going to oppose it. Um, right. But generally speaking, raising the age to purchase tobacco products, I believe, will have marginal public health returns and... Um, Again, it's one of those things. It's, we're just sort of inching closer and closer to an all-out tobacco prohibition, um, yeah. which we know from not too distant experiences that prohibition <laughs> does not work and actually causes more harm than good. Yeah. So uh, that being said, um, the other call to action we have out, this is a state call to action. We put something out this morning for okay. New Jersey. Um, oh. I don't know if we talked about this last week, but uh, New Jersey is looking at a flavor ban. Um, this is Senate Bill 298, and this was introduced by Senator Joe Vitale. Um, predictably, this passed through his committee. He is the chair of the um, uh, Health and Human Services and Senior Citizens Committee, something like that. Okay. Um, and uh, so the the next move for this is to you know consideration by the full Senate, okay. um, and this would prohibit flavors other than tobacco, um, menthol, and interestingly clove. Clove, really? You could have a clove flavored e liquid. That's so bizarre. It is. I, that um, is so weird. <laughs> Sorry. I guess maybe there's some scientific study out there that kids don't like clove. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Interesting stuff. I, I did not know that that uh, clove was a permittable flavor. See, it's usually, isn't it, when I read these things, it's usually tobacco, menthol, or wintergreen. Yeah. Yeah, Some it's tobacco and then some variation of minty. Um is usually the acceptable flavors that right. I, I mean, I don't know about you, but you know, I mean, all of my, all of my fruit is menthol flavored. All of my, my uh, tasty beverages are, are mint or menthol or tobacco. So um, those <laughs> are the was... only flavors that I appreciate as an adult. <laughs> I mean, when I turned 18, it was like, what is this banana? Uh, can I get this in tobacco flavor? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, personally, I like just cauliflower and broccoli myself. Um, someone was asking if you had any update on the supporters of HR 2058. I am actually, so what I heard and I think what people have seen around, uh, the Facebooks is that, um, the, uh, as a result of the Safata fly-in, 
Mm-hmm. We picked up four new sponsors, and two or three um, seemed likely. So uh, there could be half a dozen or more sp- new right. sponsors on the bill. Uh, I am just waiting for the congressional website to update, um, but uh, possibly tomorrow or the next day we'll, we'll be adding those people to our thank you campaign. Okay. Um, I did hear that uh, we may very well have our first Democrat signing on as a co-sponsor. No way. I know. Um, that's that's that. I, I hate to say it. That's good because then you can say it's bipartisan. Yeah, I mean, there really should be there should be bipartisan support for this. Yeah. Um, and uh, so that's that's good. Uh, I, I'm I'm really really impressed with the effectiveness of of that that yeah. effort, the Safata fly-ins. Yeah. So, um, you know, we're going to keep things up from our end and, um, and yeah, that's certainly good news. Um, but yeah, we need, we need hundreds, hundreds of co-sponsors on this would be great. Um, I don't know if hundreds of people actually end up co-sponsoring bills. Um, I don't know what the acceptable number of co-sponsors is, but, um, I, I don't either. Change. I'm sure there's congressional etiquette to be followed or something, but I don't know what it is. So we're we're inching along here, and uh, but yeah, definitely some progress, and we'll be updating that call to action soon. Um, the other thing I, I have not, I've I've all but put the polish on the um, call to action for Georgia. Okay. Um, so we need to need to mention that um, for those who don't know, House Bill nine zero seven. Uh, was introduced into the Georgia's legislature last week. Okay. Um, this is, uh, if you if you uh, minus the format mm-hmm. for which that that bills in Georgia have to adhere to, this is a carbon copy of the laws that passed in Indiana last year. Um, I believe that was, uh, was it HB 539 and HB 1487. I don't quote me on the numbers on that, but uh, okay. to something like that. Oh, yeah, here we go. Uh, SB 539 and HB 1432 in Indiana. Um, this bill would impose absolutely unrealistic regulations on manufacturers in the state of Georgia. Right. And beyond this, this, this gives essentially authority to uh, what is it? The commissioner of agriculture, um, something like that. Yeah, the the Department of Agriculture, the commissioner of agriculture, to right. license and set rules for. Uh, manufacturers outside of the state yeah didn't Um, indiana aren't they being sued over that yes there is a lawsuit yeah currently in indiana um fighting those laws um and and i think a lot of this is based on them being um a violation of the commerce clause yes um so they interstate commerce clause yes yeah it is it it is unconstitutional um Mm -hmm. this this law to the extreme yes um, and you know, there is, this is obviously being promoted by somebody with lots of money. Um, this did not come from the tobacco companies. This did not come from the vaping industry. 
This did not come from health organizations. Mm -hmm. This came from somebody who wants to basically tip the scales in their favor and their favor Mm -hmm. alone. Um, So fortunately, I think enough of the vaping community saw what happened in Indiana, sees what's happening in Indiana. And I, I I am hopeful that we don't have to work too hard to convince people that this is a horrible bill. Right. Um, a lot of what happened in Indiana last year, I think that there were some sort of, there were some hiccups. There was some, you know, this bill was just, you know, if you didn't follow Indiana at all last year, it, 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 it was ridiculous. It, it was absolutely outrageous. You know, at, at one of the hearings, there was, there were a lot of excellent points made by opponents to this bill and the the spawn that's the author, whoever I don't think he's the author, but he puts his name on as the author, right? Sort of gave this promise, like, oh, okay, you know, we see how this could be really detrimental. We're going to go back and we're going to reword some things. And I kept checking this, and you know, everybody kept checking to see what was rewarded. I think they brought down the cost of the license. Um, <laughs> there was a couple of other things that kind of got changed, but really, at the end of the day. There weren't there weren't substantive enough changes to this bill to allow for the industry to continue yeah. going, um, and uh, so it, yeah, it was a lot of uh, the the hearings associated with those bills in Indiana. It was just a dog and pony show, um, and at one point, I think somebody somehow somebody was able to say that the industry was supportive of this bill um <laughs> and and you know some of the language that we had to put in our communications were no like the, the industry does not support this bill consumers don't support this bill because you're basically taking away our access to the wide variety of vapor products not just in indiana but the rest of the country yeah. um and so uh, yeah this is this effort is absolutely scary, um, yeah. and and our concern is that if this if this passes in a second state, then there's you know it's it's going to be easier for this to be worked through in other states. Um, let me let me ask you how, and this is a strange question, but if you're seeing it pop up in another state, what are the chances it's going to spread further? Well, that's that's the concern, um, and I, I mean, I don't, I don't think we're, I, I hope we're not going. If we're coming up on the deadlines to introduce bills in in most states, right? Um, except for the, there's a, a few remaining that have not started the sessions, um, but uh, yeah, I don't, I, I certainly hope that we don't see this pop up in another state this year. Um, but yeah, I mean, if it passes in Georgia and um, these people feel bold enough, then I, I, I don't, I don't know why they wouldn't try to do it in another state. Um, it, it really depends on. I, I don't, I don't know much about the people who are promoting this, by the way. It, it's, uh, and if I did, I don't think I would feel comfortable naming names. But um, it's pretty clear that it's, it's one, <laughs> it's one group. Um, Okay. So yeah, I, I even refer to this as toxic legislation, and, and you know that that implies that this, you know, could spread to other places. And you know, it's not quite as bad as, it, I mean, it's sorry, the Utah regulations are not quite as bad as this. But I think I think that that what's <laughs> happening, yeah, 
what's happening in Utah is another example of, um, you know, when people who don't know much about this industry, which is pretty much 95, 98% of the lawmakers out there have, have really not given the amount, they, they don't know this industry like they think they do, or um, even the people kind of whispering in their ears are, mm -hmm. well, they're just doing that. They're just a, sort of whispering poison. Um, but, you know, they're, they're approaching regulations from a, a weird place and, mm -hmm. um, and not really, I think, considering the perhaps unintended consequences of, of what they're proposing. So, um, you know, we're looking at, you know, the, 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 the regulations that have passed and are and be, being implemented in Utah are pretty comprehensive. Um, and, and just by all accounts, a lot of it is, is unnecessary. Um, so, you know, there are, there are now labeling requirements in Utah that are specific to Utah. There are labeling requirements in California that are specific to California. There's a labeling law in Washington state that will create specific labeling language for Washington. Um, and so, you know, manufacturers are going to have to pick and choose if they want to do business in these states. Um, because, uh, it's, uh, yeah. So, you know, if the bill in Washington passes, they might see themselves not getting a whole lot of variety from outside of Washington state. Um, Utah, I don't exactly, Utah was actually a little bit more, um, flexible. Uh, the Department of Health, whoever's responsible for all of this, allows, you know, as a, as a retailer, I can get product shipped in from out of the state and then I will have a sticker that I can put on that will make it compliant. So that's a pretty reasonable solution. Um, but there's a cost associated with that as well. Um, so, yeah, you know, this Georgia bill is by far the worst piece of legislation that we hope we're going to see this year. <laughs> um, and, uh, so yeah, I'm just kind of waiting for some more feedback from, um, Georgia smoke free association, um, to, uh, put this out. But, uh, yeah, Georgia residents can look for this to come out probably in the next day or two. Okay. And I know we've gone really long, but it's now my job to do the transcripts for these podcasts. So I don't and have to worry okay. about offending Julie. <laughs> um, <yeah. laughs> and, and thank you for taking notes during this. It's very helpful. Well, it's, it's not a big deal. Uh, eventually I'll be able to actually transcribe like Julie was <laughs> just nice. by listening. Eventually. I'm just not there yet, but I'm getting there. Cool. So and that'll make things a lot easier. Thank you, Alex. I mean, yeah. for everything. Thank <laughs> you. And I guess we'll see you next Monday. Um, I may be traveling. I'm I'm headed out for a, a memorial service for my grandma this weekend. Ah, so okay. Um, well, I probably be in the air some, okay. somewhere on Monday. Uh, well, but I'll, I'll let you know if not. Um, it's or you can give me a list, and I can do a, a horrible. Uh, a horrible love update by myself. <laughs> uh, and it's always a good opportunity to bring Julie or uh, Brian Carter on yeah, uh, to sure. talk. Um, mm -hmm. For folks that yeah. may not. Yeah, I mean, whoever's free. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and that's cool. I hmm? should probably take the opportunity 
to mention because we're coming up on on events season. Um, so uh, actually, so this weekend, so on the nineteenth, I will be arriving in Phoenix, Arizona. Mm-hmm. Um, Julie, myself, and I think Brian Carter is coming. Um, we are all going to be at Vape in the Sun in Phoenix, Arizona. Yay. So um, I believe that's the 20, 20th and 21st. 21st, yeah. yeah. Um, yep. So, uh, and that's for a good cause. Um, that's, you know, we're Vape raising, every, that event is raising money and awareness for Vapavet, uh, which mm-hmm. is an organization that, that we support. Uh, it is the vaping community's, uh, I don't know if it's the only legitimate charity in, in the vaping community, but it's certainly... It's the um, only 501c3, isn't it? I, I think so. That's that's. I think it's the only, charity. yeah, it's the only 501c3. Everyone else is C4, C5, just yeah. simply because of, of politics, and they're yeah. not, all, I think. We're all raw, raw political. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, a great organization. It should be a great time. Um, so really looking forward to that. And with that, Thank you, I think Alice. that's it. Thank you so much, and um, we will get an update from one of the other board members next week. And um, I hope um, I'm sorry about um, your loss. It's okay. Grandma was 92 years old. She got to meet her great grandchildren. Wow! And uh, she has led a pretty extraordinary life. So, um, I, although it's uh, we're sorry to see her go. Um, yeah. We should all be as lucky as as my grandma. So it's uh, it will be more of a celebration than anything. Excellent. Thank you, Alex. Have a good night and see you in two weeks. All right. Thanks. Let me know when um, when Alex is off the line. He's off. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, somebody said the cigar folks have 150 people plus on the cigar bill. And I said, um, that's because they can, they're rich and they can afford to bribe people better. They have yes. more lobbyists. I mean, you know, for the lobbyists we have, we're pretty much paying for. And I'm not talking about CASA because we don't have any. We are CASA's citizen lobbying, right? But Safada is paying for the lobbyists and you know we don't have nearly as many as the small medium and large tobacco cigar industry do so we're not going to have that impact you've got to get in your legislator's face to make change unfortunately um and it's a shame that it it comes down to a lobbyist kind of system but uh that's how that plays out I guess um where am I here okay so I just slammed the United States that was fun (laughs) um do you think I should do the empty wheel one it's up to you (laughs) the NSA is reorganizing in a manner that directly conflicts with the president's review group recommendations this was published by empty wheel uh empty wheel blog has some really good 
takedowns of the surveillance state and and they do a, a very good job slicing and dicing and looking at the individual portions of the problems so excellent resource there um i like them i like bellingcat that's a great website um which has done a lot with citizen journalism and and geolocation and and all kinds of really just interesting things anyway Back in 2013, the President's Review Group recommended that the NSA Defensive Function, the Information Assurance Directorate, be removed from the NSA. Um, and here's the recommendation. Um, but they changed okay, uh, the recommendation below, but the RPG recommended the change to eliminate the conflict of interest between the NSA offensive and defensive functions. Eliminate the asymmetry between the two functions, which can lead to a defensive function to be less visible. Rebuild trust with outside cybersecurity stakeholders. Not only didn't President Obama accept that recommendation, but he preempted it several ways before the RPG could publicly release their findings. On Thursday night, the Wall Street Journal and New York Times published leaked details from the recommendations from the review group on intelligence and communication technologies. A panel President Obama set up in August to review the NSA activities in response to the Edward Snowden leaks. The stories described what they said were recommendations in the report as presented in draft form to the White House advisors. The final report was due to the White House on Saturday. I'm sorry, on Sunday. There were discrepancies in the reporting which may have signaled the leaks for a public airing of disputes surrounding the review group. Both articles noted the results were still being finalized. Biggest news item were reports about a recommendation that the director of the NSA and Cyber Command Commissions be split with a civilian leading the former agency. Before the final report was even delivered, the White House struck. On Friday, while insisting the commissioner report was not yet final, National Security Council spokesperson Caitlin Hayden announced that the White House had already decided the position would not be split. A dual-headed general would continue to lead both. By all appearances, the White House moved to preempt the results of its own review group to squelch any recommendation that the position be split. Today, Eileen Nakam Nakashima reports that the NSA will go further still and completely merge its offensive and defensive missions. In place of the Signals Intelligence and Information Assurance Directorates, the organizations that historically have spied on foreign targets and defended classified networks against spying the NSA is creating a director of operations that combines the operational elements of each. Some lawmakers who have been briefed on the broad parameters consider restructuring a smart thing to do because an increasing amount of intelligence and threat activity is coursing through global computer networks. When it comes to cyber in particular, the line between collection capabilities and our own vulnerabilities, between the acquisition of signals intelligence and the assurance of our own information, is virtually non-existent, said Representative Adam B. Schiff of California, the ranking Democrat on House Intelligence Committee. What is a vulnerability to be patched at home is quite often a potential collection opportunity abroad and vice versa. But there have been rumblings of discontent within the NSA, which is based in Fort Meade, Maryland, as some fear a loss of influence or stature. Some advocates for the comparatively small Information Assurances De Directorate which has about 3,000 people, fear that its ability to work with industry on cybersecurity issues will be undermined if it's viewed as part of the much larger Signet collection arm, which has about eight times as many personnel. The later spies on 
overseas targets by hacking into computer networks, collecting satellite signals, and capturing radio waves. Well, Nakashima presents some conflicting views on whether IED will be able to cooperate with industry, and in the comment she includes addresses the larger bureaucratic issue that defense is already being shortchanged in favor of the glitzy offensive function. When Edward Snowden did weigh in, in response to a comment on Twitter, when defense is an afterthought, it's not a national security agency. It's a national spying agency, quote Edward Snowden. It strikes me that this NSA reorganization commits the country to a particular approach to cybersecurity that will have significant ramifications for some time. It probably shouldn't be made with the executive review of the Intelligence Committee, mostly in secret. So, yeah, that's not really a shock. No, not really. Still kind of a shame that they're taking that track yeah yeah it's probably very predictable they're gonna do it though <laughs> well yeah but i mean why I, I guess and and this is where i agree with her why even go through the motions of appointing a committee if you're just gonna completely you know steamroll their recommendations well it, it makes it look like uh, you're going to do something, uh, even though you know you're not going to. Makes the optics better. Yeah. I mean, any of these agencies, once they get hold of some powers, they, they are never going to give them up. <laughs> yeah. And, and unless they're forced to. So. Very true. Um, let's see. I think I'm going to do Utah. Because I promised I would. Porn may become a public health problem in Utah. Activists calls porn one of the biggest unregulated social experiments that's ever occurred. The pornography industry has long been criticized for the damage it allegedly causes, including addiction, that it harms real-life relationships, causes body image issues and low self-esteem, and encourages sexual violence and more. Now Utah legislator Todd Wheeler has gone so far as to label adult pornography a public health crisis, and he'll introduce a resolution to that effect in his state on Friday. Language is already up online and can be seen here, and I will stick the link in the chat. Blindness. Blindness and hairy palms. Um, uh, Utah has the dubious honor of being the top porn subscribing state in the U.S., according to Harvard Business School professor's study. The bill may be the first governmental action to present porn in a public health light, although the discussion has been going on for decades. The proposal will take weeks to wind its way through the state legislature. But even if it achieves the support it needs, majorities in the House and Senate committees and in floor votes in both chambers, the rule won't ban porn or regulate it in any specific way. Rather, the resolution calls for the recognition of the genre as a hazard leading to a broad spectrum of individual and public health impacts and societal harms and requests various education, prevention, research, and policy initiatives. Wheeler says he wants to start the conversation about something he believes is both addictive and harmful. A lawyer himself, he says he's not arguing that porn is illegal, just that like tobacco, people should be protected from it. But is porn really a public health menace? Apart from those in the industry, most people in the space say there is some connection between porn and a range of societal problems. The distinction comes down to correlation versus causation. 
Activists say porn has a broad impact on relationships, sexual functioning, intimacy, and even the way the brain itself functions. They compare it to smoking. Some people are users and abusers, and they're just fine, said Cordelia Anderson, founder of the sexual abuse and violence prevention organization Sensibilities Prevention Services. Just like not everybody who smokes tobacco gets cancer. What's more, its effect on society has been amplified by technology, which has expanded access and skewed the videos towards abusive, violent content, she said. Anderson said she and others call porn one of the biggest unregulated social experiments that's ever occurred. We've never exposed this many children and youth to this kind of content before, and we don't know what the effects will or won't be. But those who fall on the side of correlation instead compare the porn to alcohol. Much like a glass of wine at dinner doesn't make someone an alcoholic, porn consumption doesn't lead to addiction in all cases, says Dr. Rory Reed, a research psychologist and assistant professor at the University of California in L.A. There are established links between porn consumption and depression, loneliness, relationship difficulty, and relationship discord, he said, but causality isn't proven. So harms enumerated in Wheeler's Utah bill are overreaching statements at this point, Reed said. Then there are those in the porn industry itself who feel they're being scapegoated for a problem they say is really the result of a deficient sexual education in schools. Porn is about fantasy. It isn't supposed to re portray reality, said Chanel Peterson, president of the Adult Performer Advocacy Committee. And the content of porn reflects demand, she said. Porn doesn't just make things up out of the blue. We're reacting to the market just like any other industry. So, you know, Utah. Yeah. Yeah, they need to get out more in Utah from the range of things. <laughs> they need to get out from behind the Zion Curtain. Yeah. If you know anything about their liquor laws, you'll understand exactly what I'm talking about because they have the most screwed up liquor laws I have ever seen in my life. So much like they want to regulate vaping now, I think they want to regulate porn. So, yeah. Freedom, who needs it, right? Yeah. Can't you just put, can, can, can you get Trump to build a wall around Utah? You know. I don't know, but... Because it sounds you know, like really, it's a very really strange place. It only works if he's going to yeah. build a wall you wouldn't believe, but he's going to make Utah pay for it. That's the only way that works, right? Yeah, probably. <laughs> oh, God. Public health menace. Yeah. Well... <laughs> The lube manufacturers can't keep up. <laughs> what I mean? Put put warnings They've on used the lube. all the tissues. So like, Pornhub's gonna have to have these big warnings, like on the front. Like if you go to um buy um if you go to buy snus, like Swedish snus, there's rotating warnings, and I don't know if it's on Northerners site or one of the other sites, but it says um you know. Uh, consumption of Swedish snus may cause mouth cancer. This warning only applies if you're in the United States. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's this kind of thing Pornhub would have to freaking have and, and red tube. Um, I just oh. think that's kind of ridiculous. Skype's breaking hmm? up badly. Is that? Yeah. I'm sorry. Should it's I just keep talking or should I shut up? It hmm? just I don't think there's anything you can do about it. <laughs> okay, so it's just Skype being Skype. Yeah. But the well, the recording records from your machine, though, right? Yeah, unfortunately, it's your local yeah, machine. Yeah, it's 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 coming through. 
must okay. be some problems in your area. <sighs> Probably. So it's me. Am I like really slowed down, or no, can you no, hear me you're, not? No, no, you're 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 sounding. It's a terrible thing to say, but I've got to. You sound like some sort of porn robot. I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> okay. That's <laughs> tinny. Sorry, guys. It's got to be the local weather here. Because, um, yeah, you know, it's it's Florida. It's like a third world country. So whenever the weather changes or it gets windy or it gets rainy, we get unstable internet. We get unstable, you know, TV. We get unstable everything. I mean, the wind will blow and sometimes the power will blow. And it won't even be blowing really hard. So, you know, kind of. Oh, that's what I sound like. AM radio and bad weather. Yeah. Fun. <laughs> so I guess, should we call it then for the evening? It's up to you. Okay. I can try um, hanging up on you no, and promise... restarting the call. That mm -hmm. sometimes helps. Okay. Right, hang on. All right, we'll try that. Okay. Hola. Hello. Hi, right. any better? No, it's still the same. Okay, well, then I guess we'll just call it whatever I didn't get to, I didn't get to. It's not like um, it's not like the news is going to change that much between this week and the next, although... Oh, hang on, it's clearing up. Hmm? It's clearing, it's clearing up. up? Yeah. Okay, that's actually a good thing. I'm kind of surprised, but really, really happy that it's clearing up, because I know that I promised to get to some other stuff. We talked about the PSA, the TSA... Hyperlink, keys under dominance. Okay, so I promised to talk about the Repair Coalition and Stingrays. So I guess we'll go look for the Repair Coalition. Because um, I, I think that's pretty interesting. And if we have time, I do want to talk about the basic income thing that the, the um, tech companies are doing and why they're doing it. Because that's interesting to me um basic income was actually uh, kind of a, a libertarian idea which is kind of screwed up okay a new advocacy group is lobbying for the right to repair everything last summer when the copyright office asked if anyone wanted to defend the right for video game console jailbreakers to mod or repair their systems no one had a formal legal argument prepared a new association representing repairmen and women across all industries was just formed to make sure nothing like that ever happens again. Repair groups from across the industry announced they have formed the Repair Coalition, a lobbying and advocacy group that will focus on reforming the Digital Millennium Copyright Act to preserve the right to repair anything from cell phones and computers to tractors, watches, refrigerators, and cars. It will also focus on passing state-level legislation that will require manufacturers to sell repair parts to independent repair shops and to consumers and will prevent them from artificially locking down their products to would-be repairers. It's long overdue, Gate Gordon Byrne, executive director of the group, told me. We have all these little businesses trying to repair stuff and running into what they thought were different problems in different 
industries, we realized it was all just the same problem. That problem that manufacturers of everything are trying to control the secondary repair market has two main sources, Gordon Byrne said. First, manufacturers use federal copyright law to say they can control the software inside of gadgets and that only they or licensed repair shops should be allowed to work on it. Second, manufacturers won't sell replacement parts or guides to the masses and often use esoteric parts in order to specifically lock down devices. These problems have been well known in the smartphone, computer, and consumer electronics industry for years, and it's why groups like iFixit and the Electronic Frontier Foundation have been able to mount successful challenges to the DMCA in recent years. Increasingly, however, these problems are spilling over into just about every other industry. The Repair Coalition, which is also calling itself Repair.org, includes members from the EFF, iFixit, PC Rebuilders and Recyclers, the Fixers Collective, Public Knowledge, and a series of other smaller industry groups. All consumer appliances, from refrigerators to microwaves, very much have repair monopolies from manufacturers, even if you're able to buy parts, Gordon Byrne said. Customers who have dared to repair their refrigerator will get certain parts of a repair and find that components for thermostats or valve controls are locked down via passwords that manufacturers only give to licensed repair shops that they themselves control. The problem is only going to get worse as the Internet of Things takes hold. We've had these kind of issues for a long time, but now with the electronics of everything. They're affixing literally everything in the world that is complex enough to have digital components, Kyle Wines, CEO of iFixit, told me. And so the Repair Coalition will primarily work at a federal level to repeal Section 1201 of the DMCA, which states that it's illegal to circumvent a technological measure that effectively controls access to a work protected under the DMCA. <sighs> ridiculous. Thus far, activists have tried to gain exemptions to this section. It's why you're allowed to repair a John Deere tractor or a smartphone that has software in it. But the exemption process is grueling and has to be done every three years. I don't like exempting equipment because it's all conceptually the same problem, Gordon Byrne said. On a state level, the group will push for laws such as one being proposed in New York that would require manufacturers to provide repair manuals and sell parts to anyone, not just licensed repair people, for their products. The thought is that if enough states pass similar legislation, it will become burdensome for manufacturers to continue along with the status quo. At some point, it will become easier to simply allow people to fix the things they own. We want to become an umbrella organization for repair, Gordon Burns said. We want to help the small repair technicians that aren't getting help from anywhere else. It's a well, sad state of affairs. Yeah, well, at the minute, if you want to repair anything, uh, if you're not really good using google and search engines yeah it's almost right. impossible to find repair manuals these days oh yeah well i mean but it's just ridiculous that is happening you know you hear about greening the earth and you know using less landfill space and creating less technology that has to be recycled because the process is dirty and ugly right yeah and yet they're taking and making that option so far beyond the reach of the ordinary human being. And it's beyond ridiculous. It's you're talking out of both sides of your face, basically at that point. So it means nothing. Yeah. I mean, I, I hope they succeed because you, know, well, you deserve the right yeah. to work on what you buy. You, when you buy a car, you buy the car, you don't buy a license 
You know what I mean? To uh, just well, drive the car. This, this is, yeah, this is where they're, the corporations especially have been uh, pushing the boundaries of terms and conditions. You know, infamously, you know, Apple products, you pay for the product, but you don't actually own the product. And loads of other companies have started doing that as well. It's, it's in ridiculous. the terms and conditions. They can they can take it off you anytime they feel like, even though you've paid for it. Um, Apple did another well, one recently with the latest update that if third-party people had done certain repairs on the phone, the latest update basically locked up the phone. Gotta love it. Gotta love it. It's just ridiculous. I mean, this is just ridiculous. How do we get to this point? I mean, I know it's because terms and conditions are pages long and nobody reads them. Yeah. But it's still just kind of sad that it happens. Um, okay. I don't want to talk about Marco Rubio and the Patriot Act uh, at all. Um, I'll do this one. Maryland Attorney General, if you don't want to be tracked, turn off your phone. That doesn't work well, but whatever. The State Attorney General of Maryland is taking an alarmingly aggressive stance on the use of a controversial cell phone tracker known as cell site simulators or stingrays. Stand by for action. We are about to launch Stingray. Anything can happen in the next half hour. Nice cut. I like that. Right? <laughs> um, and the cell site simulators, stingrays, arguing in court that a suspect volunteered to track simply by leaving his phone on. In a brief filed earlier this week, Maryland Attorney General Brian E. Froch challenged a Baltimore court's decision in the case of Karen Andrews, who was targeted by a cell site simulator. The once secret surveillance device used by police and federal agents to track phones en masse by impersonating cell phone towers, often without warrants. Andrews, who faces multiple counts of attempted murder, had asked the court to dismiss the charges, citing Fourth Amendment concerns over the use of surveillance device. Damn. Yeah, it seems it seems Skype isn't happy this evening. <sighs> Skype's having a moment, huh? Oh, you're coming. It's it drifts in and out. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. Because you're almost okay again now. I'm almost okay again. So I'll keep talking, and maybe they'll go away. Yeah. Uh, much like the government, the more I talk, maybe maybe they'll get fed up and go away. Um, citing Fourth Amendment concerns over the use of the surveillance device, but the state argued that. Because cell phones are const constantly reveal their locations to carriers by pinging nearby towers, Andrews voluntarily shared this information with third parties, including the police, merely by keeping his phone on. In other words, if you don't shut off your phone, you're asking to be tracked. While cell phones are ubiquitous, they all come with off switches, the state responded in the brief. Because Andrews chose to keep his cell phone on, he was voluntarily sharing the location of his cell phone with third parties. 
The argument is a terrifying but not unprecedented escalation of previous rulings regarding cell phone location privacy. In past, courts, usually relying on legal precedents established well before cell phones existed, have held that no one has a reasonable expectation of privacy when data is given to third parties, even if that data is sent unwillingly or is part of the normal functioning of a device or surface. The government has indeed repeatedly argued that there is no reasonable expectation of privacy in cell phone location information in court and out. Nathan Wessler, staff attorney of the ACLU's Speech Privacy and Technology Project, told his motherboard in an email. In cases involving historical cell site location information, the government has danced around this argument, arguing that phone users give up their expectation of privacy in their location information merely by making and receiving calls. Now, the state of Maryland is saying simply by having a cell phone switched on is enough to nullify that protection, something which police prosecutors and courts have hinted at before. Andrews was quite aware he was bringing his own cell phone into the house, and he was quite capable of turning it off, the state wrote. The issue is whether Andrews can claim objectively reasonable expectation of privacy in information in which he was voluntarily broadcasting to third parties at all times. One flaw in this argument is that it's possible to track cell phones even when they appear to be off. Malware, reportedly used by the FBI and NSA, can put a device into a low-power state when it's switched off, allowing it to continue reporting its location to nearby towers. And since most phones no longer have removable batteries, there's no way to be certain you're not being tracked unless you invest in a good quality Faraday pouch. Um, I, I had a Faraday pouch for my last one. Um, it isn't the first time a court has heard this kind of argument. In a 2013 DEA case, a New York magistrate judge said given the ubiquity and celebrity of geolocation technologies, an individual has no legitimate expectation of privacy in the prospective location of a cellular telephone where an individual has failed to protect his privacy by taking the simple expedient of powering it off. The judge went on to claim that the newsworthiness of cell phone tracking as a concept has waned, confirming that geolocation has moved from the unfamiliar to the commonplace. Conversely, the Florida Supreme Court ruled in 2014 that requiring a cell phone user to turn off their cell phone, a device now considered essential by much of the populace, in the government's view, places an unreasonable burden on the user to forgo the necessary use of a cell phone, a device now considered essential by much of the populace. In the government's view, the only way to protect ourselves against warrantless tracking of our locations is to turn our cell phones into paperweights, Wessler, the ACLU attorney, told Motherboard. But this would come at a, at a significant cost, such as having a functioning cell phone has become necessary to fully participate in the civic, social, and economic life of the nation. He concluded, because Stingray has forced phones to transmit information to the government that they would not otherwise transmit to the government, gather information about countless innocent bystanders, and probe the interiors of homes and other private spaces, a warrant is required. I agree with the ACLU on that one. A warrant should be required for that. Yeah. But, you know, it's the government snooping. wants to do what the government wants to do. Go ahead. Yeah. It's data snooping. Yeah, of course they need a warrant. <laughs> well, I think so. I mean, I, I love the way the Fourth Amendment is actually constructed. And if we actually followed the Constitution, that would be really interesting thing um just simply because 
you would actually have so much more privacy than what you currently have at the moment. Anyway, I promised I was going to talk about uh, universal basic income a little bit, and I'm going to. Um, this is by Dylan Matthews. Why a bunch of Silicon Valley investors are suddenly interested in universal basic income. Basic income is having a moment. First, Finland announced it would launch an ambitious experiment to see if it would work to give everyone in a given area a set amount of cash every year from the government, no strings attached. Now, Silicon Valley seed investment firm Y Combinator has announced it wants to fund a basic income experiment in the U.S., one YC's president, Sam Altman, announced on the YC blog that the company wants to hire a researcher to work full-time on this project for five years and supervise an experiment wherein Y Combiner will give a basic income to a group of people in the U.S. for a five-year period, though we're flexible on that in all aspects of the project. Basic income as an insurance policy for the robot takeover. I didn't write this. Y Combiner, a startup incubator that counts Dropbox, AirNib, and Reddit among its alumni, seems mostly interested in basic income as a response to technological unemployment. In the future, the reasoning goes, enough work will be automated that demand for all but the highest skilled labor will collapse, leaving a small group of programmers and capitalists with all the coconuts and most people with nothing. Then the writer says, I'm skeptical this is ever going to happen. Matt Iglesias makes a good case against the hypothesis in this article. And let me pop that there. Um, but basic income is one way to make sure everyone survives structural employment changes in the future. I'm fairly confident that at some point in the future, as technology continues to eliminate traditional jobs and massive new wealth gets created, we're going to see some version of a basic income at a national scale. This, interestingly enough, is also the rationale used by many radical leftist thinkers to justify universal basic income. I love that it came from libertarians, the idea. Under one view, delightfully named fully automated luxury communism, Humanity will overcome capitalism by having machines do most of the labor and then distributing the proceeds fairly across a public that will be able to work far less. Radical theorists Nick Sinek and Alex Williams wrote their recently published book, Inventing the Future. The technological infrastructure of the 21st century is producing the resources by which a very different political and economic system could be achieved. Basic income has always brought together ideologically divergent supporters. In the early 1970s, libertarian economist Milton Friedman and 1972 Democratic nominee George McGovern both advocated versions of the plan. But a coalition combining avowed anti-capitalists with literal venture capitalists for the project of basic income is still pretty startling. What Y Combiner study could add? Life under a basic income. Y Combiner's interests here are nonetheless pretty unique. Most past basic income studies, aptly reviewed by Noen Krowick at RE Code, have focused on the question of whether the policy reduces work, which was thought of as a bad thing. The best experiment in the Canadian town of Dolphin in the 1970s was considered promising because it suggested the policy didn't discourage people from working much, only teenagers and new moms. The two groups, who might be better off not working anyways, reported working less. 
By contrast, more poorly conducted U.S. studies suggesting that a negative income tax, a variant of basic income that phases out as people earn more from their jobs, discouraged work were taken as a mark against basic income. However, if Altman's concern is caring for people after technology has wiped out all of their work, then does basic income keep you from working isn't a very satisfying question. Altman writes that he wants to know, do people sit around and play video games or do they create new things? Are people happy and fulfilled? Do people without the fear of not being able to create more economic value than, okay, are people happy? Do people fear of not being able to eat, accomplish far more and benefit society far more? Okay, people aren't afraid of not being able to eat, okay. And do recipients on the whole create more economic value than they receive? These are harder questions to answer. If someone relies on their basic income to create a gorgeous sculpture, how do we measure the benefits society far more than what they were doing before? What if the sculpture is super ugly but brings a person who made it incredible amounts of joy? Figuring out reliable non-bullshit metrics for the criteria Altman proposes is really tough, but Altman's questions are in any case far different from those posed by most basic income studies to date. This is a golden age of basic income experiments. Rob Herson's The Three Smith Statutes, Helsinki's Most Awesome Public Sculpture. Okay, I don't even understand that. I th yeah, okay. The Y Combiner study promises to be the fourth notable basic income trial in the late 2010, in the late 2010s. Right now, there are two notable experiments in rich countries in the works. In the Dutch study of Urich, uh, suffers from the same key flaw as the U.S. study, only by targeting existing beneficiaries. The second, much more promising experiment is Finland's, which is testing a whole bunch of approaches. The researchers are trying a pure basic income, a partial basic income paired with some existing welfare benefits, a negative income tax, and some other ideas. They're also aiming to test the idea, not just by randomly selecting <clears throat> sorry, a group of people across the country to get benefits, but also by having some areas where a big chug residents or even all of them receive the benefit. That lets you see what happens to an entire community when a basic income policy is introduced. Having a whole town get benefits could have a cascading effect, such as households escaping poverty. As some people use the income guarantee as insurance, they can take risks from companies as universities see increased enrollment, etc. Dauphin is really the only place we've had a study on that scale so far, so Finland's experiment is adding a lot. Finally, there are rumors swirling that Give Directly, a charity that gives cash to desperately poor people in Kenya and Uganda, is planning to launch a large-scale experiment of basic income in a developing country. Such a study would be much cheaper than rich country equivalents. Even a guarantee as small as $1,000 a year could double or triple many residents' incomes. These three trials are similar in many ways to what Y Combiner is proposing, especially the Finland one, but they're addressing different questions. Finland and Eric want to know if basic income is a more efficient way of delivering assistance to poor people than their existing policies. They're not particularly interested in ushering a post-work future. The Give Directly program is trying to figure out if basic income is a viable way to lift people in developing countries out of extreme poverty. That's probably the most promising use of basic income from a humanitarian perspective. Giving $1,000 to someone living on $2 or less in Rwanda affects a much bigger standard of living increase than giving $1,000 to a poor person in the U.S. But none of the three experiments is interested in the kinds of questions. Does basic income make for a more creative society liberated from the constraints of cash? Does basic income increase happiness through greater leisure? That Y Combiner wants to answer. 
If done rigorously, the firm's study could wind up making a useful original contribution to the basic income movement. Hopes for a post-work future is part of a big part of why basic income has become popular. It makes sense to test whether basic income can make the best parts of that vision real. Do you have any thoughts about that at all? Uh, it could be interesting. Um, I think it needs to be bigger than just a town is the problem. Unfortunately, it takes an awful lot of money to be able to do a large-scale experiment. Well, I think we misunderstand what money is. Yeah. I mean, that's part of the problem with everything. Everything we talk about is, like, cost and benefit, right? And we misunderstand what money is. And we've talked about this before. Yeah. There, there are books that very greatly enhanced my understanding Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith is an absolute read if you want to talk about ethical capitalism or what capitalism really is or what it could really accomplish if it were divorced from, you know, this marriage to big business. Um, and it really explained to me what money is because it all comes down to this. Money is you. You are essentially money. You, yeah. your ability to create things and your ability to work hard is money. That's that's all it is. It's just you. And it's just the way we've come up with um, instead of direct trade, you know, direct trade where you have a cow and I have a pot. I'm yeah, hungry, bar so, became you know, untenable uh, exactly. when the population grew. Yeah. And that's all it basically is, and which is why things like, you know, Bitcoin and, and Y coin, Start coin, is why all of those things are really interesting because it takes and divorces money from the person and makes it part of a computer algorithm, which is very different, and would actually be a way for them to do like a, a basic income kind of thing, if they completely divorced money from people. That would be the only way they could do it. And it's it's kind of what they're doing with, you know, unfungible funds and money that's linked to nothing and reserve currencies. And st they've all kind of started it. And then taking money and divorcing it from pieces of paper or coinage, gold, uh, gems, and turning it into a card. I mean, they're headed towards that sort of future anyway. So it, it makes it really interesting. Um, from the standpoint of what the future will be like. And I know I'm a Luddite anyway. I fear the machine. I fear the rise of the machine. I can't help it. And that's because my job, the job I have now, which I'm not in love with, but I do have, it has a 98% chance of me being replaced by a machine within the next 15 years. So I find that that subject's really interesting to me. I don't think RoboJohn would be nearly as much fun, though. Um, if you think I'm fun, <laughs> well, you know me away from this program, though, so of course you think I'm fun. <laughs> but thank you. Um, ooh, you know what we haven't done in a couple weeks? What? Muppets. Oh, Muppets. Okay. Muppets. Oh, hang on. Okay. Need to find the file. Why do we always come here? I guess we'll never...
like a kind of torture to have to watch the show. Sorry, it just it felt like I haven't heard the two cranky old guys in a while. I've missed them. <laughs> um, I don't know if there's any real solution to the money thing, but I think we're actually we actually have a chance of moving to a society where we could be divorced from that. And that's part of a, a larger issue than just my pol pol political beliefs and, and the whole Luddite thing. Um, and I, I think about it a lot. I don't really have a whole lot of answers because I'm not involved with things like that. But um, what, what really usually there me. are there are people in society who are already divorced with money as such, mm -hmm. and that's incredibly rich people, usually of the political persuasion, because <laughs> they really don't seem to understand why poor people are poor. Well. You know, well, Michael said it in chat. Rich people produce the least. All they're doing is shunting yeah. bits of paper back and forth. Well, they do, and and the other the other problem is there's there's. I like money. I know you guys don't know that yet. I like money. I like freedom. I like the Fourth Amendment. So you know, I like privacy. So these are things we talk about here a lot. Um, There's an economic theory, and I think it's been proven really true, that once money starts to move upwards, right, once money gains upward mobility, right, it only flows upwards after that. Yeah. Okay. And then you get to the point where we are now, and, and Barry and I were actually talking about this before we went on the air, it's like 92% of the wealth in the world is held by six people. The rest of us are living on scraps. That's not right either. We really do need to do something about the money. Well, there needs yeah, to be a the, kind of revolution the, about the it. The top and six need to be worried as well, because what happens when everything's at the top of something? Yep, it falls down. Oh, it falls down real good. Gravity's um, a bitch. <laughs> well, um, see, the other thing I think these people at the top have forgotten, and this is where I sound like a, a nun. When people start not being able to feed their kids, that's when the torches and pitchforks come out. Yeah. When you have nothing to lose, and there's a lot of people who have nothing to lose, people start paying with their lives. I mean, let them eat cake should maybe be an example for these people to grasp. And you're right, people like George Osborne and... and Lord Sugar and, and all of them don't understand. Well, no, I can't say Lord Sugar because he was a self-made man. Um, but a lot of those people really don't understand what it takes to dig yourself out of poverty. How hard you have to work to be as poor as you are. Or how hard it is to make a choice between, gee, I really need these two teeth extracted or do I not want to have power this week? Or... You know, I could go see a doctor, but that would mean I would miss time out of work and I can't afford to do that because I've got a car payment or I've got rent due or I want to eat this month. Um, these people are completely divorced from that reality. And no, economics does not trickle down. I don't care what Ronald Reagan said. Um, the more I've studied money and the way it works and the way it flows... Rich people get more and more money and poor people get less and less money until they're the gap between rich and poor, right? The middle class 
you know, how that doesn't exist anymore. It's just it's like the super poor people living in the gutter, the poor people who get up and go to work every day, and then the super rich people. Well, the poor people who live in the gutter pretty much only exist to scare the fuck out of us into going to work for these people that have all the money. I, I know. I, I sound like a nut. I can't help that. I would love to be the kind of classical libertarian that exists only in America. Okay. America has this weird ass breed of libertarian that doesn't exist anywhere else on the planet. The, the libertarians that exist in the UK and stuff, they're like the Adam Smith breed of libertarian who very much believed very different things about money than the libertarians in America do. And it's very funny um, looking back at, at libertarianism as a journey from the 1950s, it took a pretty terrible course. Um, and there was a lot of money pumped into this idea for some pretty terrible reasons. Although I think a lot of the standards behind it are wonderful. People should have freedom. People should be free to do as they wish if they're not going to hurt each other. And government should be small enough to fit in your pocket and small enough to not really be a threat, but be able to provide defensive security of the country. And it should do as little as humanly possible to interfere with what you want to do with your life. As long as you're not hurting anyone. Those are all ideas I'm really behind. The economic ideas I have a problem with. You know, but I don't have such a problem with them that I think you dismantle private property. So I don't lean left libertarian enough. I don't lean right libertarian enough. I guess I'm a centrist. Well, somebody's got to be in the middle. <laughs> I guess that's me. Ain't no thing like me but me. Me and Rocket the Raccoon. And I guess that's it for this evening. Okay. Unless, did you have anything? Yeah, I don't think so, no. Okay. Advert. Advert. Why spend hours searching for in-stock ammunition when you can use AmmoSeek.com? AmmoSeek.com is a search engine for finding ammunition, reloading components, magazines, and guns for more than 300 calibers at more than 60 online retailers. AmmoSeek.com only shows items that are in stock and readily available for shipping. You can search by caliber, grains, manufacturer, and more. The results are displayed by cost per round, so you are able to get the very best pricing on your ammunition of choice. Find ammunition at the best prices, fast. Moc.com. Good night, guys. Have a good week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>